Near the end of college, which is to say a long time ago, some friends and I drove from Boko Mo to Lawrence, Kansas to listen to the author David Eggers give a lecture. This was shortly after the publication of a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, his memoir. And after reading some stories written to the leaders of Fortune 500 companies from the perspective of a dog named Stephen, Dave Eggers brought on stage an expert in itching, which is to say in how and why we itch. And the idea, both then and ever since, has filled me with joy and wonder and creative inspiration. We are not beholden to any rules. We're not beholden to any formulas. We're not beholden to any methodology. We, as creatives, can do whatever the fuck we want in whatever way we want, at whatever time we want. We can lead a wrapped audience into a discussion of how the human body and skin and our nerves react to the sensations of itching when we might also be reading excerpts from a book we wrote. And sometimes if we do choose to take unexpected paths, not only will we be sharing of ourselves, but we might be leading those who listen to us on very unexpected journeys. This is Eyeball. I'm your host, John Loomis. Today we're talking to the photographer and director, Chris Floyd. I think you'll love this conversation if for no other reason that you get to listen to a very clever and thoughtful British man talk. Chris and I discuss desperate curiosity and personal work, time machines and rockets, and the elegance of simplicity and directness. I think I was probably on my third or fourth bourbon last night. My wife was out of town. I came upon you talking about lighting and in very musical terms and how you think a lot about how lighting or the look you're trying to achieve does or does not sound right. How is that sort of conflation between music and lighting and music and art and music and visual arts? Obviously you've done a lot of work in working with musicians. How did that become the thing you use to describe what you're looking for when you're taking photographs on set? Um, gosh, well, you're really throwing me in at the deep end. <laughs> Alluding to music in, in the way that I describe lighting, I think comes from really when I look at light in the image and the way light is used in the creation of an image and the way it's revealed in the creation of an image. To me, it looks or sounds, as I said, it's to do with harmony. It looks harmonious. Mm. It looks harmonious. There's balance to it. There's um, subtlety. There's It reveals things almost in layers. The creation of music is, is much more of a, a collaborative venture for musicians. You know, when I think of all the musicians I know, and I do, I do know a lot of musicians, they are generally, they have a very open, warm spirit to how they mm-hmm. interact with each other. And if I've spent quite a lot of time on tour buses and in confined locations with musicians, 
yeah, the way they communicate with each other, it has a, yeah, this really great warmth to it because instinctively each one of them knows they are part of a greater venture which can only succeed if they work together. You know, no one in... Wow. That's my dog. <laughs> No, dog sounds are very um, are key to the success of eyeball. So uh, that that stays in for sure. No one in their right mind just wants to listen to a drummer playing on their own, you know. But then you put a drummer and a bass player together, and it's like, oh yeah, now we've got a groove, you know. So, oh, there you go. However, I think for people, for us, for photographers, image making is far less. Although it's collaborative in terms of you know maybe stylists and hair and makeup and set builders and props people and all that it's pretty much a much more singular pursuit in that ultimately what goes on in the four walls of the frame is 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 up to us and us only in a way and that's why it um that's how it differs from music but the the kind of use use of alluding to music in describing pictures is is yeah it's to do with probably balance and harmony and melody and, and um well i think it's connected to i always think about light in terms of this sort of this ephemeral quality you got from shooting chrome back in the day and there was just a yeah, yeah. thing that happened like a, a creaminess almost you know some of this like this velvety texture thing that's very hard to really dig down into what you're really looking at but there was a feeling and that's what i'm trying to achieve which is Unless you're working with the same assistant you've worked with for many, many years, some of these words don't make any sense to most normal people. But I, I, I really responded to what you're saying based upon, you know, textures. And I think that's really, you're, you're dead on with talking about music and that. You know, and music has played a pivotal role in your career. I mean, I think last year your book on The Verve came out. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of entwined and it was so much to do with, it was everything I wanted to do when I was like 17, 18. I've always loved music and I'm more or less a frustrated musician, you know, probably. Wish I could play music, but I can't. So the closest I get to it is in doing stuff with musicians and then, you know, really the, the, other, the other thing, another big thing that's connected to it is the fact that light and sound are forces that stimulate the senses. So... You know, and they behave in very similar ways. Yeah, you know, both so ways. Light will, light will travel without anything to disrupt it. It will just continue to travel in the same direction in much the same way that sound will do. And you can, you know, you can bounce them, reflect them, diffuse them. You can do all kinds of things with them, you know. No, it's a useful analogy. It's especially useful for people who are learning how to light because people are always confused about what's happening when they're lighting and it's hitting off a highly reflective wall and then they're getting all this what do you think is happening to that light you're shooting at that wall? It doesn't stop. It bounces out. Yeah. It gets diffuse. It, you know, things happen to it. Mm. And I think people have a better understanding of how sound works than how light works in the sort of abstract. So it is, they're obviously very closely related. Yeah. Far enough light in one direction in a confined space with, with white walls, you will get that kind of echo. It will hit the wall and it will bounce off and it will hit another wall. And, you know, obviously it gradually becomes weaker and more, and softer the, the more it travels, but it's still having it's still having an effect. I mean, one of the big things that a lot of assistants, I you know, young assistants who don't have a lot of experience, 
you know, one of the things that they forget quite often is the effect that the floor has on the way light behaves. Right. You know, you put a light up and uh, maybe it's eight feet high and it's angled down towards someone's head and then they're standing on a white studio floor and, you know, they'll be like, oh, why is the light all like, it's all light under their chin, but we've got the light so high. <laughs> You're like, well, it's because it's bouncing off the floor. Or off you a know, really so big surface, it, yeah. Yeah, so we have to put a big piece of black cloth down to stop that. There's all that. But, you know, I once, I've told this story before that I once had this conversation about sound and vision with, um, with Mark Ronson, mm-hmm. kind of saying my theory to him, all, all this stuff. And he said, yeah, sometimes the difference between a, a great sounding snare drum and a terrible sounding snare drum is just putting a piece of tissue paper on the snare drum. Wow. And that's the same for us. Absolutely. You know? We've got, we've got, oh, I don't like the way this is making this person's nose really shiny. So I'm going to put some, something diffusing material between the light and their nose just to take the, that edge off. Yeah. I I imagine you had plenty of time to discuss such theoretical ideas, at least on that, uh, that car shoot when you shot him with like 10 million neon signs, it felt like, I mean, he probably wasn't there for the whole setup, but it seemed a very elaborate production yeah it was i mean we um we did we rented quite a lot of neon from this there's this great place in london it's called god's own junkyard oh that's Um, great and they rent they have tons and tons of neon old neon signs and lights and things so we got a load of stuff from there and then put it all in you know around the car so that it, it reflected in the car and then that was quite complicated that, you know, but a lot, a lot of that was, we kind of evolved on the day. Right. I so, mean, you, you know, so, so much of what I do, I have no idea what I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it when I get there. But I know that I have enough experience to be able to work it out quite quickly, almost by a process of elimination. Right. You know. Yeah, this isn't working. Why? I feel the same way in terms of the technical side where I might have a general sketch of what I want to try to do. And the client certainly might have some notes about what we're trying to achieve. But a lot of it, I don't want to have nailed down until I'm in the room, until I'm feeling however I'm feeling that day. I need to respond to whatever stimuli I find there because that's the only way it feels like I'm building this thing and creating this thing in a way that feels like it's me and not just a set of formulas yeah that kind of also i feel similarly to the way i prepare myself to photograph people i might know a lot about beforehand but even when i do i feel of two minds about how much i want to know about someone you can't help it when it's paul mccartney and everyone even people who don't know much about the beatles seems to know something about him because of his life the life he's led but Mm. i wonder how do you think about your preparation not only in terms of the technical side but also in terms of do you like to do a lot of preparation especially when you're photographing someone who has a very iconic personage is it important for you to keep it much looser uh, i like to keep it much looser because for me the entire experience is predicated on my desire to have an encounter with with that person and for it the result to be born out of what we talked about, how they made me feel. A lot of it, for me, it, it definitely it still all comes comes from lighting. You know, it's back to the lighting thing again, is that the way someone looks, what they look like, 
is mm-hmm. the starting point. And then that gives me a kind of, I, I look at them and I think, well, I'm going to try and light it like this. And I often can't really articulate, you know, I can't articulate what this is. I'm just going to, it's very, it's very much instinctual and based mm-hmm. on feel. And, you know, I'm not a conceptual photographer. I, I don't have grand conceptual ideas like if you go to Annie Leibovitz's sort of um John Cleese hanging upside down like a bat from a tree face right right right. um I'm not really that kind of photographer and I all that stuff that period she went through where she was doing all those things you know Whoopi Goldberg in a in a bath full of milk they're all brilliant that you know but I don't really think like that um and also I often think that conceptual, particularly within the context of editorial photography, I often think that conceptualizing the subject is it's not cheap, but I think it doesn't last. I think I find it quite right. gimmicky. There, I mean, there are, there are things that do and I mean, don't. I mean, I, I I think you're very capable of having made her Steve Martin picture, which is probably my favorite picture she made. The one with the modern art, and he's wearing the white suit, and the artist has run the paintbrush from the canvas right up him and so he's, yeah the best thing i can say about really good work is that it is dead simple and and yet also incredibly powerful to me the, the mm-hmm. most elegant thing that ever, you ever listen to or see is incredibly focused but undeniably beautiful because it's there's nothing to hide there's no gimmicks there's no one hanging upside down from a tree there's nothing and if that is powerful, yeah. then it's truly great. And there's something about some of her concepts, which are so simple that maybe they skirt that line. But I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I think it's very important, you know, looking at your work over a long period of time, a lot of your choices are very simple. And so it all comes down to execution. Yeah. It's, I, for me, it's feel. It's all about feel. It's, 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 I t- this conversation is going to go back to music time and time again. I'm telling you. It's, it's, um, it is about how it feels. And that's, I'm looking for something or trying to achieve something that you can't quite put your finger on in the way, just in the way that it looks, the feel of it, you know, it's, and and the other thing I use a lot to describe what I do is cooking, Mm. is food. You know, someone's, I arrived somewhere, actually, I went to, I went to photograph someone couple of weeks ago and uh i arrived and literally got out like driven about three hours i got out of the car shook their hand said hello and they said what do you want to do where do you want to do it and and i just said i can't tell you what i'm gonna cook until i've seen what ingredients are in the kitchen right 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 but i know that whatever ingredients and this comes back to sort of experience and having been doing it for a long time I do know that whatever ingredients are in the kitchen, I'll be able to make something tasty. Absolutely. And this is, we, we 100% sync up here. This, that's all I want is to go and have an original experience and to find something, especially when seem, something seems to be completely devoid of anything that's engaging me. Then you open that last yeah. door and you say, ah, th- okay, there it is. There's, there's the piece I'm going to build this whole structure off of. I love thinking about that because I think that's a terrifying notion for a lot of photographers who don't come in with a game plan and say, okay, well, we'll do this. We'll do that. We'll do that. I I don't know how to do that. And I don't, 
whenever I have a plan, it's, it's gone in the first 30 seconds because they start talking and I can't help but listen and respond instinctually to the way they're making me feel and how I am seeing them in this different light. Because however much you know about someone, you meet them and then you really start knowing them. And that's what, who I want to photograph, especially people who've been photographed a lot. I have no interest in making the picture everyone expects them to see. And that it's something that I think is really amazing about your work is that you make extremely simple portraits sometimes of very famous people. And yet those feel very real and authentic and important 10 years, 15 or 20 years later. That to me is, is the real magic trick of this whole thing. Because what I know about portraiture is that I can't tell this person what to do to get to this result. We have to work together to get there. And a lot of times I have to flatter, frustrate, confuse, or whatever to where they give me something that maybe they probably didn't mean to, but suddenly it feels real. And then I know enough to return to that or get them back to some place. Yeah. I can never say, Oh, do this. Now, if they've done that, I could say, that's it. That can you give me one of those again? Often because I, I have not spent that much time photographing actors. And so most people I photograph either have seldom been photographed or that is not their intelligence. Therefore, yeah. you have to lead them down a path and it's a path of discovery on both sides. Um, I often think that or feel that I have to get them. I'm trying to get them to a place where they've, they've forgotten why they're there, what they're doing. Right. You know, that may only last for a few seconds or it may go on for a minute or more. And then when they, it's that point where they become unconscious of the camera that you often get the magic. It's almost like you're just, you're floating in this kind of gravity-free environment for a short while. That comes from being able to communicate with them uh, whilst also doing the technical side of the job at the same time so that you can be doing all the camera stuff and you're aware of all the technicalities, but you're also fully engaged in a conversation or an interaction with them where they really do feel where they really are. It's like people that can, you know, walk and chew gum. You're walking and chewing gum at the same time. <laughs> right, right, right. They're not aware that you're chewing gum, because which is the camera part. And then you're having, you really are having a uh, Steve Pike. Do you know Steve Pike? Of course, he, of course. He, this is a one of his lines was um, a photograph is a record of a conversation, was what he said. Yeah, um, and this is a photographer very known for a lot of what we're talking about. Very direct, yeah, engaging portraits, and you're bang on with the juggling act. To me, your career has had a lot of everything. Your early work, especially when you were coming over to America, were you already shooting, you know, a lot of portraits and that was a big part of your work or did that happen over time? Oh no, I was always doing portraits. No, I was, when I came to the States, I was, I was, I wasn't, wasn't really doing any documentary work at all. I'm not really, I'm not really a, I would say that what I did when I came to the States was I got sent off on things that were kind of portrait driven. They were like, it was like a portrait main course. With uh, with a side order of reportage was some some of the things I did, which happens much more in the 
in America than it does over here because with commission work for sure, right? Assign ass- assignments. Like when I would get commissioned to do stuff for like ESPN, right? It would you would often go somewhere for three days maybe, and you would do the portrait of the of the the sports person, and and then maybe you might get to spend a day while they're training or just hanging out with them. Or I seem to get a lot of NASCAR drivers <laughs> when I was doing stuff at ESPN. Yeah. So, and that, as far as I can remember, all of them seem to live in Ohio. Really? That's my memory of it anyway. Huh. Uh, and they all seem to have, you know, farms or live in places with massive, like with junk yards everywhere so you would do do the portrait of the guy and then i'd just get lost in in like photographing the shit that was just scattered around the place you know right so for your for your european sensibilities this was perfect this was this was america writ large well the thing the the, the thing about that, that yeah because because we're so much more we are so much more limited in our space you know like Britain is like Britain can fit into Texas something like thirty times, right. and and there are sixty five million of us. So, you know, our population is maybe a fifth of the United States, but but we have you know one thousandth the amount of land, right? And um, so this notion that you can spread out and just once you fill a field up full of junk, you just move on and start putting your junk in the next field over. That's just, that just doesn't, you just can't do that here, you know? So that was the, th- one of the things was that I found really amazing about, about uh, coming to, particularly, you know, going to do shoots, stories and jobs out in the heartland was the, you know, just that thing of just the amount of kind of the way people's stuff just spreads out you know in any direction when you go when you go to you know places and, and stuff that was one thing that i found we have a lot of parts yeah. that don't have a lot of stuff happening so yeah there's no no lack of room to put your crap that you're not currently using <laughs> it's the reverse is true because I, i'm coming to scotland next month and there was a long discussion on well i don't know should we should the people who have to leave halfway through fly out of aberdeen or inverness and i kept reminding everyone that they're only like two and a half or three hours away from Edinburgh in the first place. So the whole, the whole point is mute to our American stabilities because yeah. everything's so tiny and like hilariously close to each other that like, we don't, it doesn't matter. No one cares here. Yeah, exactly. It, it is a, uh, it, it is, it is enjoyable when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, you know, that idea that, yeah, I mean, that is a, that is a small triangle of by your standards, but by our standards, that's epic. Well, yeah, and there's a national park right in the middle. I mean, clearly it's a lot of room. I mean, I've got a job in Wales next week. It's like 100 miles away, so probably two hours. And everyone's talking about going there the night before because it's, you know, it's a big drive. So, <laughs> Is it in uh, southern or northern Wales? It's in South Wales. Uh-huh, yes. I, never, I didn't spend any time in South Wales because that's where the cities actually are. But I spent a lot of time on a couple of visits to Northern Wales and it's unbelievable. It's such an amazing spot. Yeah. Yeah. I think of it as 
one of the remotest places in Britain because it's quite hard to get to. Yeah, I mean, you have to drive down proper old. You know, there's not a lot of uh, fast roads that go. There. Oh, no, there's I mean, we were I mean, because we were lost and, you know, traveling and looking to be lost, we were on, you know, cart paths and stuff at some point. Um, but it was yeah. it was it was amazing. It was not only beautiful, but just I like being that aware of the history of things you're around and that away from you know being away from things but also being close to a good source of you know beer or whiskey or whatever you're into is quite enjoyable experience to be had i wanted to ask a little more about you know your relationship to taking pictures and creating work in america because it's it's a place you've returned even after you left to go back to your native land it's a place you've returned over and over again, both in commissions and also to create personal work. What is it about working in America? Because it's so you know much easier for you to see us through whatever lens you're looking at, but also more clearly because you can step back. We are very much ourselves and so are trapped in those bodies. But you seem to have come again and again, You know, sometimes spend time in Texas photographing rodeo queens and Texas football. But you've you've done a lot of work all over America. Yeah. How has that inspired and influenced the way you think about your work and your personal work? There's a few things actually behind why. What, number one is I think Americans are so unselfconscious in the way that they present themselves. Mm. Um, it's a place that venerates and encourages the idea of the individual in a way that is far less prevalent here, although it has changed quite a lot here in, in my lifetime. I, you know, I, I think the idea that I would say really since the 1980s, it's, it's, we've become much more American uh, mm. in, in that sense of the, the idea of the individual being paramount. It's that, and then there's things like just... American kind of industrial design just looks so cool. Right. You know, your your trucks look cool. Your trains look cool. Even your buses, you know, your the Greyhound buses. No, the Greyhound is, cool. is an iconic, for sure. Uh, there's something actually also which I have a slight obsession with, which is, is uh, the, yellow, the yellow lines in the center of the road. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which just looks so great when you juxtapose it with a blue sky mm -hmm. so even that so our, our center lines are white and yellow center lines with blue sky on like a california road is just to me it's like it's like visual honey you know <laughs> right. um and they're all things that i guess are just kind of you don't really you don't really think about probably if you grow up if you grow up with it and a lot of it is also to do with you know just the influence of american culture from the moment we're born you know you know my kids can speak i think almost perfect american accent with an mm. american accent because they've watched so much american tv stuff on netflix and youtube and things right. like that from almost from as soon as they could speak you know so, if i if i let my kids watch as much great British baking show as they would like, I think they might be able to pull off some, some <laughs> yeah. regional accents. Yeah. Also your weather is much more, you know, our weather is so unpredictable. You know, the, we're all obsessed with the weather. 
one of the things about this country is apparently we sit at the center of four competing weather systems. Right. They all kind of meet uh, over the UK, which is why our weather is just so unpredictable because you just don't know what you're going to get. Whereas, you know, you go to Texas in pretty much any time from the middle of June (laughs) until the middle of September, and you know that the odds are it's going to be in the 90s. In the 90s with no rain and maybe a a chance of a tornado at some point, but that's about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, American light, the, the light is has its own thing as well, you know, its own quality. So it's a combination of things. And then just the sun, yeah, I, but a lot of it is to do with the with the way that the um, American kind of character, the, 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 the individuality and the way, you know, that, I, that, you know, like if you take all that stuff and it, like the high, like high school football is such a good example of that. I mean, I wrote a thing, I wrote a, a load of words to go with pictures I took at, um, high school game in tech in dallas you know one of the things i realized was how committed and invested everyone in the neighborhood around that school is in the success of the team absolutely it's 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 a huge part of their identity yeah and it's our band is better than your band our team is better than your team our cheerleaders are better than your team our drill team is better than your team you know our halftime show is better than your halftime <laughs> show you know our pre-match our pre-game our pre-game spaghetti supper is going to raise more money than your pre-game Very important. spaghetti supper yeah. you know and if you are not seen to be involved in the in the creating the conditions to help with the success of the team then you're kind of cast out in a small way, you know. Or even in a big way. I mean, in part, different parts of this country, not being involved in the things everyone's doing is basically a huge act of almost, you know, piracy. I mean, you know, it, it, is, yeah. it is very much staking your own different claim on how you're going to live your life. You know, so, so although so much of it is about Celebrating the individual in the way, say, for instance, that uh, the quarterback is, you know, a star role in that whole theatre. There is also a sense that if you're not conforming to what's expected of you, then you are you're definitely um, going against the rules of of the whole. So it, it's kind of interesting because people are expected to behave in quite a conformist way. Uh, you have to be involved in this. But once you're in, once you agree to be part of the conformity, you can then ex- excel if you choose, if you, if you choose to, as an individual within that. So that was the thing I noticed was it was almost the high school football thing. It's almost like a cult. It's very culty. I think parts of American culture. I mean, the idea that you're, you wouldn't, you're not interested in sports, for instance, is almost, you know, kind of fucking man, are you? You know, it's a bit like, it's a bit like that. Do you know what I mean? No, it, it, it certainly was. You could have maybe leveled that a little bit. A few, you know, maybe a couple of decades ago was almost unheard of for someone not to really want the role of the high school quarterback. Now kids have so much more access to worlds outside their own communities, both in our country yeah. and others, that I think there's a wider range of acceptable places for them to excel maybe, but even in places like, you know, the most famous, you know, Midland, Texas, where Permian places, uh, Permian yeah. against, I can't remember the other team, 
that was made very Odessa. famous by Buzz Bissinger. Uh, yeah. Um, Friday Night Lights, yeah. Friday Night Lights, right, exactly. So uh, things have slowly started to change. Not And part of this, the whole story we're telling here is the story of the railroad tracks that separated a town and what it meant to be on one side or the other. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is to say, you know, to one side or the other of the the cattle track that separated the town. I mean, this is all very bedrock American identity stuff here. So we've always been very suspicious of anyone wanting to not achieve this thing that we're supposed to all be wanting. But um, yeah, I, I certainly, I can see it in, in your work and others work that there is a very clear and theater to this whole thing. And so the pageantry is, is very ripe for the visual arts. Um, oh Yeah. Yes, yeah, you're right. It's it's there's a there's a theatricality to, you know what? It's almost like Americans they perform their lives, you mm-hmm. know, as much as they live them. That you know, there's a, there's there's a there's a type of American whose life is a performance, you know. I think that's becoming ever more true because there's so many Americans who are trying to spend all their time broadcasting what they're doing, no matter how banal it is at all times of the day or night, more than actually thinking about, Hey, maybe I should work on the quality of the content of my character before I just start, you know, broadcasting it everywhere. Now it's more important to be sharing and performing as you say, than it is to be thinking about who wrote the script. Yeah. In the long run, you know, sizzle, the sizzle is important. But the steak is is just as important in the long run as the sizzle. You can't be all sizzle and no steak forever. You can be you can be you can be sizzle for a while, and then the quality of your steak better live up to your sizzle. Otherwise, no. Otherwise I mean, I, whenever I think about this conversation, I always think about David Bowie, who has extremely huge idea that kept changing about the performance and the way it was packaged and the identity, but it was met 100% with incredible skill and craft and musicianship and writing and just very earnest care for the quality of the product. Yeah. We, we've certainly been a, a wonderful exporter of very good music for a long time, but for a long time now, we've also been exporting just terrible banal shit that is like all sizzle. There's nothing there. Maybe, you know, if you lose one producer who's moving on to a more higher paying project, the whole thing collapses. You could look right now at country music. Uh, Ken Burns right now is premiering a new episode i think almost every night of country music his uh he's doing his, his new project is on country music and you, you listen to these stories on the history and the culture of country music and how it's changed over you know the last american century and you mm. almost can't square it up against what contemporary country music in america sounds like which i other than a few bands who break through into my orbit a little bit more and i know you recently uh, spent some time with mumford and sons who probably have some role there. I don't know what, how you even define what is what these days, but 
the sizzle steak thing is very uh, is very much a part of what we're thinking about, what we're what we're always kind of fighting with. I hope you're right, and I think history will sh- almost always shows it eventually that steak wins, but it sometimes it takes a long time getting there. But that's in a way is is I think what that's that's uh, that's what pop and rock are, you know, in a way is that pop is sizzle and and rock is steak. My kids are absolutely obsessed with. Uh, Ariana Grande. I have to say, I she's really growing on me. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, now that I've been exposed to it, it, it in sort of like like Guantanamo levels of, you know, having it played outside my cell <laughs> four hours a day. Then um, it's a fine balance, isn't it? You know, there's yeah, sizzle and steak, pop and rock. I think you know it's. I don't know. I mean, country music, I don't have huge. I mean, I know all the classics like Kenny Rogers and Chris Christopherson and Dolly Parton. And I love a lot of that stuff. But all the contemporary stuff that comes from, I guess, Nashville, that I've no idea about any of that stuff at all. That's more like, I don't know what that is, a lot of that stuff. It's got to have four, what, there's four ingredients, aren't there? There's dog, wife, truck. Yeah, especially the men. Oh. Uh, there's a couple newer ones who are talking about real things. There's a there's a man named Chris Ferguson, and a couple other guys who are breaking through, who are actually telling stories in the way that define the legacy of country music. But most of it is you know that listing thing where you know it's I love America. Here's my truck. Here's my dog. Here's the beer. Here's the thing. And, you know the the list song is still very much alive and well for like summer, especially summer pop country music yeah i don't know what that is i mean i think a lot of that's it's it's so cynical isn't it it's so cynical it's it's um patriotism by numbers that stuff it is but for some reason not that qualified it's always worked here someone caring right. so little to barely even change the message and sort of the i mean the sponsor changes nothing else changes and it yeah. it goes number one on the country things seemingly I mean, there are all these people. I don't even know these, the names of the people who do it, but every once in a while, you're you rub up against it because you're watching something else or something happens, and you hear it, and you're like, "Isn't this the same? This has to be the same song that was, you know, popular in five years ago, or last year, or whatever else." And it's not. It's and an yet another exactly carbon copy, and they just wolf it down. And I don't understand why that continues to work in a way. Maybe it's, you know, maybe what we're really talking about is how we got, you know, into it the way we have with the president. I I am very excited that over the course of us arranging this, your country's leadership completely imploded upon itself in a really fantastic way. And just the night before we got to finally talk, we're now in a formal impeachment process with our country's leaders. So, you know, we've really met full on, you know, Clyde in the middle here. So it is very exciting. Yeah, It's disastrous. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's, it's it's terrible. It it could not be worse. It makes me, I mean, I I think eventually I'll, I'll wake up and realize I've been clinically depressed Mm -hmm. for, you know, two and a half, three years and and before, but it is, if I take a step back, it is an alarmingly beautiful fireworks yeah. display it is incredible i don't know where playwrights are looking for material but they don't really need to look that far <laughs> no i mean it's it's just like yeah. it's, it's pure greek tragedy it's just it's completely insane uh but it's 
it's a it's a manifestation of a uh, populism and the rise of so much of it has been caused i think by or the, the the catalyst for it has been social media you know because everyone now has can have a voice as long as they keep shouting they can you know they can shout forever through the medium of social media and so on and it's really 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 well you, you let us you let us right into it here because i i did want to ask you about something that now seems almost anachronistic your almost a decade ago project on social media you did a project on the people you followed on twitter called 140 characters in which you photographed the 140 of them who were willing to be photographed and you met the people who are actually in real life behind the digital screen name mm. and i thought that was such a simple but elegant way to think about how our lives are changing that I thought I always thought it was such a beautiful idea and such a dead simple and yet so powerful in the connection and sort of akin to, I think about Rinaldi's touching strangers project, right? It could not I mean, there, literally there's nothing more simple than that. And yet by witnessing this act, he led us to all these amazing things happening about race and class and everything else. Uh, how do you in general, think about your personal work because I think a lot of my peers who are doing less personal work. And one of the reasons why is every single idea we have can only become successful in our head before we even shoot it. If it gets more and more and more complicated. And I'm trying to fight against that and try to make my ideas more and more and more simple and just streamlined, take a, take a little idea and try to make it elegant. Oh, um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> so your 140 characters project and, and, you know, and we could also loop in the project on everywhere you've ever lived and even your oh, V2 yeah. rocket project. It's about concept and execution, but ultimately it's a very, they're very visually simple ideas. You know, the best thing that ever happened, especially conceptually is that we see something incredibly simple done perfectly. And it feels as if already must have, been with us because it's so um thank you those three things actually the 140 characters thing and then the every house i ever lived in and the people that live in them now and the v2 one which was called the consequences of vengeance really they're all three the one thing that all three of them have in common is is a base curiosity about the specifics of the subject so i'm 140 characters. I'm just me talking to these people on Twitter. Apart from their kind of avatar, their, their profile photo, I don't really know what they look like, but I'm, I'm reading what they're writing and I'm having exchanges with them. And it's just a desperate curiosity to just meet them, you know, wonder what they're like in real life, you know, that kind of thing. And then this very same, almost identical thing, really, actually, with every house I ever lived in is that I just wanted to go back and see these places that I'd spent a part of my life in and find out, you know, what's it look like in there now? What's the, what are the people that live in there? What are they like? You know, that's my bedroom. Get out. You know, that kind of, that kind of thing, you know, what are you doing in here? Um, and it's the idea, you know, the thing I always really, the one thing I always am really, I don't know, not obsessed with, but 
I was in Hamburg a few months ago, and obviously being an absolutely massive Beatles freak, it's Hamburg is the place. I don't know if you know much, but they, about that. But the Hamburg is where they went when they were young, and they played. You know, for two and a half, three years, they were playing clubs in Hamburg, in the in the red light district of Hamburg, and they lived. I didn't know that. You didn't, or you did. I did not. No, no, yeah. So it's a massive part of the Beatles. It's it's the kind of ground zero of the Beatles myth legend. Is that the you know all the iconic kind of early photos of them wearing black leather were all taken in Hamburg. You know, and they went over there really green, not really very good at all as a band. Uh, and then you know by working for these kind of scary, they they were playing in clubs in the red light districts, and it was all the clubs were owned by criminals. You know, by pimps and gangsters and stuff and you know it was like they had to play eight hours a night you know six nights a week wow. you know and they would you know they would come on stage at sort of 10 in 10 at night and play till six in the morning and they and they that's why they got good they got good because they were you know it's the, malcolm gladwell's it's the backbone of malcolm gladwell's ten thousand hours theory thing so anyway when they went to hamburg they the first club they played in the guy that owned it he he owned a cinema like 200 yards around the corner and that's where they slept they slept in this horrible cold room behind the movie screen in this building you know and that's where they would all they all shared a room and slept in there and 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 i when i was in hamburg i went to i went to that building it's not a movie it's not a cinema anymore it's something else now but but I went there and then I walked from the door of the of that place to the club that they played at. It's like a two minute walk. And I just sort of made a made a time lapse video on my phone of that walk. And I and I just thought, wow, those they walk this walk from this door to that door 250 times at least, you know? And right. I'm literally walking in their footsteps. And what I wouldn't give now to kind of travel back in time and just be an observer watching them go to work, walking to, walking to the club, walking to work. Going back to the thing about every house I ever lived in, that's kind of just almost put going back in time. and, re- and Yes, yeah, so you build yourself a time machine. Yeah, and standing in that room, in that bedroom where I slept when I was 10 years old, here I am 35 years later, I'm standing in the exact spot where my bed was and where I slept when I was 10 years old. And, yeah, and I can remember lying in that bed in about 1978, when I remember I have a very clear memory of lying in that bed and working out how old I would be in the year 2000 in 1978 one night, you know. And back then, I just couldn't imagine what the year 2000 was going to be like, you know, when I was 10. And here I am, Let alone you know, the year here, 2020. Here, yeah, yeah here I am in insane. like 2010 or something, 30 odd years later or whatever. And it's, you know, it's just that thing of being of time and. It's quite Proustian that you know that all that that time stuff. So there's that, and yeah, and it's and the the photography element of it actually is almost for me almost it's almost the least important part. It, it's the excuse. It's the excuse to right. get me in the door to knock on the door and say, "Excuse me, I'm ever so sorry to trouble you, but uh, my name's Chris Floyd. I'm a photographer, and I I lived here a very long time ago. And that room at the top of the stairs was my bedroom." And um, I'm I'm going I'm visiting every house I've ever lived in my whole life, and I'm I, I'm I'm trying to photograph the people that live in them now, and uh, 
and my bedroom as it is now. Here's my website. Here's a card. If you if you don't have to decide now, I can you can check me out. Contact me later if you want. But most people were were like, oh wow, that sounds interesting. Come in, you know. So it's just the photography is like the it's almost like having a you know like having a car an FBI card, you know, like that get that gets you in the building, you know. Here's my here's my right. Eye it's card. it's basically evidence. Yeah, and then and then the V two thing is very similar because. For those of you listening who don't know about this, the V-2 was really the first ballistic missile, rocket-powered ballistic missile, developed by a German scientist called Werner von Braun. It came into use in the last six months of World War II, and the, and the German army fired about 1,500 of them, at mainly at London. And my great-grandparents were, my, mother, my mother's, uh, yeah, my mother's grandparents were killed by the second last one. So I think there were 1,402 rockets in a six-month period. And, um, you know, they would come. They were the first weapon to arrive faster than the speed of sound. So no one ever heard it coming. There was no warning. You know, you would hear it coming after it had struck. And my great-grandparents were killed by the second last one a few weeks before the end of the war. And... Um, and my grand, my mother, who was three at the time, was was supposed to be staying with them that day, and uh, for some reason or another, the plans changed, and and she didn't get she didn't get sent there to stay. Uh, so she she wasn't she she missed it, and therefore you know she wasn't killed and so on. But so that there's that kind of sliding doors element, you know. Of all that, oh, that's exciting! We get the we got the sliding doors reference in, and then, Man, I haven't thought about that movie in a long time. And then, um, but what what I made it really interesting for me was I then found because there was a in the Imperial War Museum in London there is a big at the end of the war they London County Council uh, commissioned a bomb damage map of London at the end of World War Two, and it's this huge book with every you know like a big map of london and every piece of bomb damage was mapped and recorded and it was color coded according to the severity of the damage so totally total destruction was was marked black on the map and you know minor damage was white and all the colors in between uh, repairable not repairable you know mm. all that stuff and the v2s were marked with a circle uh, a black i think it was a black circle and it was the circle was the size of the impact zone, like how much you know, because they affected you know, a V two could take out, could take out like a hundred houses in one go, you know. Um, wow. uh, the building that my great grandparents lived in were, were was like a tenement block um, that killed. I mean, one hundred and forty, one hundred and thirty seven people were killed by that strike. But that, that so that was one side. So I, there's the bomb damage map of London, which I got in the Imperial War Museum, and you can go in and. They'll get it out for you and you can look at it. But then I found this. I found that on the other side, I found a, an amazing uh, set of German army records of the launch, launches of V2s. Mm. So you could take that and the bomb damage map, which mapped the date of the impact and the time of the impact in London. And you could find generally the Germans launched those rockets. And in the, they were launching them from The Hague in the Netherlands, Holland. Right. Uh, so they would go up uh, 50 miles up into the atmosphere and then come back down again in, I think, maybe three or four minutes 
from launch to impact. Wow. So you can find sort of uh, this such and such army unit launches this V2 from this place at sort of 7.18 a.m. And then in the London map, you'll find an impact at 7.22 a.m. You know, so you can, so that was what made it really interesting. Yeah, so then I got this idea of like, well, I'm going to go and photograph impact sites as as that what, it was also a kind of interesting study in what kind of architecture was created in the wake of this, you know. So obviously after the war, everything was pretty cheap and cheerful and a lot of buildings that were put up quickly and cheaply because the main aim was to get people housed as fast as possible, you know. Yeah, we see a similar rise in A-frame bungalows here post-war. There's that. And then I went to, we went to um, Holland for a few days and photographed these launch sites, which were generally kind of really heavily wooded areas because they were kind of, they were also the Germans were being bombed by the US and British air forces at that time. So they, they had to launch them from, from places that were hidden. So generally forests and, uh, and heavily wooded parks. So uh, that's where they all were launched from. So it was quite interesting. It was just interesting to put this, you look at it now, it's just a park. It's just, it's just some, it's just some trees and, you know, muddy ground. And for, and then you go the other side of the other side of the coin, and you see what what the consequences of that were. You know? Right. So it was just right. that you know it's that sort of time. I'm I'm always quite fascinated by yeah passage of time. You know. Well, I think that's that's a key thing to remark upon because I think powerful in your work and especially your portraitures and married to the execution, which is often very straightforward, seeing them very clearly, very straightforward, sometimes even head and shoulders. Yeah. You clearly are making choices, especially in terms of what you're going to present, not not the client or, or the, whoever commissioned it, that is very thoughtful about how this picture is going to feel, not today or tomorrow or next week, but how is this going to feel next year? How's it going to mm. feel in five years? How's it going to feel in 10 years? My greatest hope for my own work is that one the image asks more questions than it answers and two there's there's a sense of time which is not in step with our the publication cycle of the commissioning client there's something about what transpired in this room and something about what i was able to find in a split second that is going to feel relevant as time marches on yeah it seems very clear that that's important to you is this something you are able to think about and execute live in person? Or is this, is this something that is born out of editing? If you look at enough of your portraits, that seems to be a, a chief concern. But how do you think about that? And how does that square up? Um, oh, gosh, that's quite complicated. Um, I only brought very easy questions for you, Chris. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, it's just one battle at a time. I don't, you know, it's kind of easy to have a, can, you could kind of, develop a retrospective analysis or justification for why you do what you do and frame it all into one big overarching philosophy and make yourself well, well so, so let's, 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 let's make it simpler then you're in a room you're photographing someone who is important to you and i think you're probably like me anyone who's given me the the pleasure of their time is important to me and you're trying to make this picture what are just the basic, most simple goals? On a case-by-case basis, one of the things really is 
I'm kind of actually, I'm quite shy and uh, uh, almost socially un self lacking in confidence. I'm, I'm not very, you know, I'm physically quite unconfident and I feel incredibly awkward in the flesh. And a lot of the time I come away from having photographed someone sort of almost kicking myself because I feel that I haven't pushed it far enough because I've been too yeah. reticent or too uh, not wanting to embarrass myself or not want, more than anything, not wanting to embarrass the subject into having to refuse to do something. Or, and a lot of my photography is really a, an attempt by me to conquer my sort of shyness you know I'm not you know if it wasn't if it wasn't for the job I do it's unlikely that I would meet many people ever because <laughs> because my natural inclination is to withdraw and I'm introverted and I you know I don't really have a lot to say you know a lot of the time I'm, I do well I do have things to say I just find it difficult to articulate I'm, I'm much better in in writing you know with the written word actually mm -hmm. than I am with mm -hmm. you know which is sort of unusual I think for a photographer for a visual person to be able to articulate themselves in a literary way I I feel quite confident when I write it's very dangerous I've gotten into trouble I was a lit major in college I've gotten into a lot of trouble in my career writing better than the person I was opposite and making them feel something they can't quite put their finger on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you, you yourself have gotten yourself into a wee bit of trouble, especially in writing. I, I remember a interview on a certain friend of ours blog in which you spoke about the quality of British photography and found somewhat of a chilly reception Oh, I didn't, it wasn't the photography that I, <laughs> it was not the photography I got, I got a chilly reception for. It was, it was, uh, it was the attitude of, um, it was the way that photography was regarded by mainstream publishing. Oh, right, 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 right. And that I felt that. Which is, which is honestly even worse. Uh, yeah. I mean, for you, from a career very, standpoint. A couple of people, yeah, not a smart thing to do, to be honest. But I, that's the other thing is I do, I do find it difficult to bite my lip. You know, when I should bite my lip, and often I say things, I think, in a way that's often sort of full of a kind of intended to be slightly humorous and knowing. And I often think, well, sure, doesn't everyone? Everyone knows this. I'm just saying out loud what everyone, <laughs> lots of people think, because I know for a fact they think because I've had conversations with them about it, you know, in private. And I'm, yeah, now it's I'm good saying you it live where you live, though, because. Your country is much better at a general sense of humor that most people can carry with them. We have become ever more humorless. And anyone who especially speaks any kind of truth, especially a known truth now here, is in deep trouble. Especially if they're a comedian somehow, which is Ironic. unbelievable that we've got we've arrived at this point. Yeah. So, you know, I have learned to be a bit think a little bit more before I open my mouth. But often I think that what we are often we're being asked to provide something that's sometimes just regarded almost as filler, you know, to go in the gaps between the ads. Well, speaking of not thinking before you speak, 
let me bring up two Davids that seem to have played a large role in your creative life and certainly in the creative life of British creatives. Uh, David Bailey and uh, David Hockney, you know, you have photographed both. What role, if any, do they have in the way you've thought about your art? And certainly... So David Bailey and David Hockney, you know, I've, I've, I've photographed each of them once, although I have met Bailey two or three times. I spent a day with him in his studio and then I went back another day and photographed him. And then Hockney... Again, just once uh, I went to his house in London on a very damp, dark sort of January, like three weeks after New Year, you know, when it's a really depressing, miserable time of the year with sort of nothing to look forward to in terms of light or weather, you know. Um, <laughs> the Hockney's influence on me is really just on, it's just amazing that he came from, he came from the most, I mean, almost like stereo. It's like a, a cliche, a parody of of a of a working class northern industrial city, seemingly with very little in the way of prospects, probably in his childhood, and just by sheer dint of of his talent and his and his kind of and his work ethic and his ambition, he became someone who represents with his art light space freedom color when he comes from such a sort of monochromatic place you know he comes from bradford which is uh was a kind of mill town like it was a cotton sort of industry you know cotton mm -hmm. mills mm -hmm. big sort of gloomy factories it's cold and it's wet it's and there's not a lot of it's just very beautiful emerald swimming pools no no color whatsoever no blue skies you know no swimming pools no yellow socks no you know none of that um and he's just and then and then the way he looks he's sort of particularly when he was young you know with his like looked look like an owl you know with those round glasses and stuff um and just this sort of just this kind of the cheek of him in a way you know i just think he's he's so witty as well and he's just he's just an he's an individual he is a pure pure individual just he's going along he's paddling his own canoe and then bailey the bailey influence is really just he just as i've said before he just completely being exposed to his photography was the was the first time I'd seen photography that was not like weddings where you could do it. Right. You could do this for a living. People would pay you and you can hang out with really well, cool more people. than just that. I mean, he, he was one of the first three celebrity photographers, you know, ever really. I mean, he, he, he lived this incredibly larger, you know, larger than life kind of life documenting the swinging sixties. Yeah. But it's only later that, you know, it's, I discovered him first and then it's later that I discovered, well, he was influenced by Avedon and Penn. You know, they were his right. influences. You know, so he leads me to Avedon and Penn and then, you know, and then they lead me to somewhere else and, and then you end up, at, then you end up, you pass through Helmut Newton and then you're into, you know, you go through all these, these people are, they're like conduits. They, they lead you on a path through all the really good stuff, you know, 
because everyone in the world is influenced by somebody else. You find out who influenced them and then who they influence them. So Bailey for me is like, I called him the photographic ground zero. I feel like he's my home port, you know, photographically. And it's, that's where I started on the journey. I feel like um, right now here, there are these themes happening that are probably good things. You know, like we're, we're kind of swinging back towards authenticity right now in American photography, especially American editorial photography. But what is authenticity? Which, I mean, what's, um, you know, well, how, the way, the way you see it presented is much more straightforward. Um, maybe a little bit more like 1970s style where the, where the lighting is quite natural. Yeah. Um, I think that there's you know, a, they're, they're, I'll just say, I think that there's a, there is definitely a big, big reaction against the dominance of, of Photoshop now, because we've been in the Photoshop era really for like, Probably getting on for twenty years now. Really, I'd say the early right. early Photoshop adopters. You will, I would probably put at like nineteen ninety seven, ninety eight. I mean, it was obviously around before that, but really, I would say that's my recollection of when I went started to see cutting edge photography that was becoming digital. You know, not not shot digitally, but shot on film, but then scanned and then right photoshopped. Right. Uh, ninety seven, ninety eight. And then by about 2003, everything was becoming digital in terms of everything was being digitized and retouched digitally. And you started to see really heavy, heavy treatments of extreme, you know, extremes. Like all, you know, all things, when something new comes along, it gets kind of pushed to the, it gets tested to the extreme, doesn't it? And, uh, and I, but I think what we're in now is you're in a, we're in the phase now where you've got millennial photographers you know millennials are not even that young anymore they're i mean what is the definition of a millennial someone who was 18 in 2000 so now you know an 18 year old in 2000 is now 37 you know um so those people are coming the millennials are really coming into their peak time now and what you're seeing is because they're a generation that's really grown up digitally the digital natives it's something they've kind of known their whole lives is that they're kicking? Right. They're kicking against that, and 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 that, and that thing that you mentioned about the the, the quest for authenticity—that's manifesting itself in people shoot going back to shooting on film and doing C, you know, hand print, C type prints. There's a great film lab in London called Labyrinth, and I know the guys that run it because, you know, I, gosh, yeah, as you would, twenty-five yep. years I've known them, you know, and they're, at, you know. I mean, that, there was a point in London where there were probably about 250 film labs at one point, you know, in the, around the year 2000. And, and, and then by 2010, I think there were about four left, you know. But now that so many people are going back to shooting on film, they're absolutely like they just can't. They, they've got too much work. It's, it's, um, it's great for them, you know. And I think that's, that's the authenticity thing is that. Is that, and then I actually tweeted something yesterday was that I've noticed that a lot of young fashion photographers are really, really using a, a, like a really low contrast look at the moment. Hmm. Everything's really, really flat where the highlights and the shadows are almost touching each other. They're so close, you know, and that I think is a, is a reaction to the fact that, you know, you could push the contrast to kind of infinity in Photoshop. You can make things so contrasty in a way that you never could with film ever you know or even even right. even really in in like printing on black and white you know on 
grade five black and white paper, you you never get anywhere near the level of contrast that you can get in digital. And so it's interesting to see people go in the complete opposite direction and making everything really flat and kind of murky looking. You know, I've noticed a lot of that lately. Yeah, we have that here. Then that's part of this authentic, you know, whatever that means, conversa- conversation. You have this sort of, yeah. well, this is what I found and this is how I used it. And a lot of it is just like, you know, really bumping the shadow value up. So it, it it's more of almost a mid-tone. And I don't know, I mean, that itself is not authentic. It's just another look. It's a look. Yeah, it's a look. But, but it's being, but it's it's almost, even if people don't realize why they're doing it, it's a... The subtext of it is that it's indicating, hey, my work's really authentic because I'm not pushing the shit out of it. Right. I didn't, I didn't kill clarity on, on my slider. Yeah. Therefore, this is authentic. Yeah. But I, I guess what I mean from the way I see this authenticity thing, and I agree with you that it's a meaningless word. We're, we're doing two things at once here. Um, we're trying to be much more straightforward but we're doing so under a very strict set of guidelines very much in America right now. And I hope it's the same in the UK. There's a huge push to give a wider range of opportunities for a more diverse group of creatives. And so it's kind of getting mixed up into this authenticity thing. wherein you have a lot of people who hadn't been doing major cover work or major editorial work before. We're getting these opportunities and sort of their go-to is straight ahead because they have only been working for a few years. And so that is now sort of being thought of as being more authentic because it's so straight. Right. And I don't know. It's, it's, we're kind of in this weird uh, mix up right now. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, we're a couple of middle-aged white guys. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, yeah. We are. You know, and we're named Chris and John. Yeah. So, so you know, you know, I, I in the end, though, but that's the thing I was saying earlier about sizzle. In the end, yeah, sure, give people, give everyone opportunities. Of, you know, yeah. If you want to have longevity in, in, in not just in this field, but in any field, whether you're a lawyer, or accountant, a photographer, a writer, you know, you're only really going to survive if, in the end, the, the truth will out. You know, so the cream will rise to the top, and it will last, uh, and and um, and then. W- People, once the opportunities have passed, you know, then, you know, the, the rest will, subs- will subside, I guess. You know, it's just, you know, I, 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 w- I would not go back at any point in time if I could choose to. You know, I wouldn't wind the clock back and say, oh, it was better then. It was better, you know, it was better 10 years ago. It was better 20 years ago. I, aside from the politics of, of you know, I mean, <laughs> politics with a big P. Right. You know, it's an extraordinarily, I think, I mean, when I look at how, you know, one of the big things that I see with younger people, it's just the, how much greater the learning curve is because because of uh, it's been enabled by, by digital, you know, you can take a, you can take a picture on a, on a phone and know instantly if it's working or not. Whereas, you know, when we started out in the olden days, it took you, you know, the time from taking the photo to the time where you learned or discovered if it worked or or not was you know was twenty four hours you know time it took to take right. it to the lab get it processed look at it 
Whereas now, you know, you can your learning curve is like five seconds instead of you know two days. So I think that's you, I see people in their early twenties, you know, who are just so much more technically and creatively advanced, you know. And I am I am extremely envious of that. I have to say, I'm envious of of what they have in that regard. Well, yeah, but my my perspective is there's so much spongier. They're so much more able to integrate and to be like, oh, I well, I can do that too, can't I? And yeah, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, you can. And I think it's a lesson for all of us, you know, middle-aged fucks out there to be like, well, everything we are doing is all choice still. Yeah, I mean, everyone can change anything at any given time. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, that's what we all can do. We're all, you know, also stuck in our minds and our bodies. And so we're going to continue down certain kinds of paths. But the tools available to express ourselves are ever more incredible and useful and really democratic. Mm. So we're are living from a purely creative standpoint in an incredible era. Yeah. Things can only get better. (laughs) I like that. That's a, that's a very British spirit to it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we we Americans are very optimistic, but things can only get better. Soldier through is, is a, is a nice, nice way to, to think about things. Yeah. I do want to bring up a, point of deep envy from my past and looking at your work, which is your photo shoot with Eva Green on the occasion of her role as James Bond's girl, the female Vespa. lead uh, in was, no, what was she uh, Casino called? Royale, I believe. Uh, what was she called in it? Vespa Lind. There you go. Gosh, you know what? That was in the Dorchester Hotel in London, Eva Green. And she was really kind of a bit off with me. Not particularly warm. A French versus English thing. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, 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 <laughs> she had the aloof part of the English and the aloof part of the French. Um, oh, wow. Wow. Both. <laughs> um, but I was playing music in the room on a, on a stereo in there. And um, I remember one of the tracks I played was this classical piece called well, I can't remember the German. Lately, I have lost all track of myself, is mm. what it translates as. And it's a kind of uh, sung by this opera singer called Janet Baker. Uh, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. piece of music. It's about six or seven minutes long. And that was on. And she just really noticed that. And she was like, what's this? And I told her what it was. And then she kind of seemed to warm to me a little bit after that. I think maybe and it she, worked. she yeah. thought I was more cultured than I first appeared to be. So that was nice. And then she warmed up a bit and she was great. So, you know, she didn't like that. You were, that you were called Chris. That was, yeah, that was it. I think I didn't have a, um, sophisticated enough name, but the thing was, was that it was that one small thing changed the way she perceived me. It's interesting. You know, it was that one small thing, you know, and then, and then you did very well by her. She looked gorgeous in those pictures. Oh, thanks very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you did some good work. She she brought a lot of good work to it yeah. as well. Uh, it doesn't hurt to have very talented subjects on occasion. <laughs> no, Chris, a real treat to talk to you. Yeah, um, you too, John. I enjoyed that. My thanks to Mr. Floyd. You can see more of his fine work at chrisfloyd.com. That's F-L-O-Y-D. Or on Instagram at Chris Floyd. As always, connect with Eyeball on Twitter and Instagram. 
theme music is by Scott Pryor. Listen to more of his beautiful music at scottpryormusic.bandcamp.com. See you next time. And he'll focus twice. He doesn't use a tripod because he likes to keep it spicy. He likes his photo spicy. Yeah, he likes to keep it spicy. This is my dad's podcast, and it's called Eyeball. <laughs> Goodbye, you crazy animals.